Hello and welcome to Plotress. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing Love in the Afternoon by Lisa Clavis. This was published in 2010 and is number five and last in the Hathaway series. It is number last. <laughs> I said it was number five. I know. Um, we have loved the Hathaway so far. I would go so far as to say that it is my favorite Claypus series. For me so far, yes. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'd have to look and see like what of hers I haven't read, but of what oh, I have read, it is. Well, my we, we are starting the Ravenel soon, guys. So don't worry. We're not done with Claypus after this. So the thread that was being carried through all the novels, which was the incredible hatred slash sexual tension between Leo and Marx, was resolved in book four. Correct. So there's and a little less family background in this one. Yes. So I, I did miss, I actually missed it a lot. So the jacket, before we talk about Beatrix and her romance. She harbors a secret yearning. As a lover of animals and nature, Beatrix Hathaway has always been more comfortable outdoors than in the ballroom. Even though she participated in the London season in the past, the classic beauty and free-spirited Beatrix has never been swept away or seriously courted, and she has resigned herself to the fate of never finding love. Has the time come for the most unconventional of the Hathaway sisters to settle for an ordinary man just to avoid spinsterhood? He is a world-weary cynic. Captain Christopher Phelan is a handsome, daring soldier who plans to marry Beatrix's friend, the vivacious flirt Prudence Mercer, when he returns from fighting abroad. But as he explains in his letters to Prue, life on the battlefield has darkened his soul. And it's becoming clear that Christopher won't come back as the same man. When Beatrix learns of Prue's disappointment, she decides to help by concocting Prue's letters to Christopher for her. Soon, the correspondence between Beatrix and Christopher develops into something fulfilling and deep. And when Christopher comes home, he's determined to claim the woman he loves. What began as Beatrix's innocent deception has resulted in the agony of unfulfilled love and a passion that can't be denied. You want to start this off, Meg? Um, about this, this, this jacket, I'm not loving it. The, it's, the, in, it's wrong. It's incorrect. Also, my favorite part is <laughs> there's there's a part where it says she has resigned herself to the fate of never finding love, and then in the next sentence is like, but she's gonna get married anyway. Which. <laughs> like, Nope. Just to avoid spinsterhood. And I was like, wait a minute. I thought she was resigned to never finding love, thus resigned to spinsterhood. But I guess I guess they're trying to say that she's going to settle. But something. she's not. But she's not. That, that is That's not, not in the book. No. I mean, she's, she's feeling sad that she might be a spinster, but not because she'll be a spinster. She loves her family and will always have a place with them. So she's not about to leave them to go marry just some dude. Second problem. Prudence is not in a relationship with Christopher writing back and forth with him. And it's only when he reveals how blighted his existence has become that Prue is like, I don't know how to handle this. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm going to help you. Like, that is not how this starts. It's it's still it's letter number one. 
yeah the first letter she gets it and she's like oh he's getting a little deep for me bye <laughs> and they weren't engaged before he left no <laughs> they barely knew each other he wrote her one day out of boredom she was like oh my god he sounds kind of lame and Beatrice is like this guy seems like he's hurting can't I just write him back uh. I'm going to be so honest with you, Lane. I can totally see myself in high school. This did happen to me, actually. I got a letter from this guy that was, like, all angsty, and, and I did not respond. <laughs> okay. I'm assuming that his problems were not, my friends are dying in front of me. No, but he did have, you know, issues. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he had serious issues, and I was like, oh, I'm not responding to this. I'm a terrible, horrible person. I am Prudence. But here's the thing. Prudence wasn't actually a bad person for not responding. Yeah. Like, she wasn't actually interested in him. She was a bad person for showing the letter to Beatrix. Yes. That's that's the bad part. If she had just never responded, I mean, yeah, that would have been rough for Christopher, but I don't think it would have been... Like, but well, like a response that. of like, uh, okay, I don't know why you sent me this. Come home alive. Good luck. Wouldn't right. have been what he was looking for either. And that's all Prudence could have provided. Right. That's true. If she had just written back like late, <laughs> like, oh, I guess I have to write a letter out of obligation. That would have been the end of it. And this book wouldn't exist. So. Right. But, like, for the record, Prudence is not a bad person because Prudence didn't have a crush on Christopher and didn't want to write to him. Prudence is a bad person for being mean to everyone, making fun of them, and just showing off Christopher's letter in a, like, derogatory way. I mean, that's also true. She she basically just, like, tosses the letter at Beatrix. Yeah. So, I mean, that's literally what I imagined. <laughs> she was like, here, toss, take it. Um... So, I can't. Um, Meg, what was your 17-word randomly generated summary? Well, here it is, Lane. Being an animal expert also helps when dealing with loved ones who return from combat with PTSD. Yes, because you are a human animal. we, We are all animals. And dealing with the traumatized human is the same as dealing with a traumatized animal specifically dogs that parallel is drawn very closely in this text because there is a traumatized dog the dog also has ptsd there yes the dog has ptsd mm-hmm. so my it sounds like we're making fun of it i'm actually i'm sure the dog did have ptsd i'm not no no serious i'm being serious yeah. like he yeah. also cowered at loud noises and yeah, yeah. so she cures the dog first and then starts working on the dude <laughs> that's what we're slightly making fun of <laughs> Okay, Lane, how about you? What was your 17-word summary? Gender-swapped Cyrano de Bergerac, but with letters, sex, a menagerie, and a, a kind of mean Christian, and an H-E-A. So nice. I know. Uh, it is really nice to have a happily ever after, isn't it? Because Cyrano, Cyrano deserved better, guys. For real. For real, oh, real. And, I, and she's not ugly, also. She Yes, she's... One of my favorite tropes, actually. <laughs> but as we all know, Cyrano was disfigured. Yes, Cyrano had, yes, but also he had a, a beautiful soul. Okay. 
I mean, I would have gone for a Cyrano, wouldn't you have? I mean, we all look, we read romance novels, we like scars. Obviously, we would have gone for Cyrano. I mean, the looks aren't the problem. It's the stuff he pulled and the self-pitying angst factory. Yes. is an epistolary romance <laughs> with a little Cyrano de Bergerac mixed in. So for those of our readers who um, are not familiar with the story of Cyrano de Bergerac, because I never know how much a part of the lexicon these things are, Cyrano is in a military company with a guy named Christian. They both know a woman named Roxanne. Roxanne and Christian are dating, but Christian is sort of like pretty but dumb. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so such a dude. I love him. In order for, you know, to make Roxanne happy, because Cyrano's just sadly pining away in the closet, um, or literally in the bushes, he feeds Christian the right words to say to Roxanne. So Roxanne falls in love with Christian, but with Cyrano's words. Mm -hmm. And then everyone um, is sad in the end, and it's a tragedy. It is a tragedy, yeah. Yeah. It is a tragedy. This is not a tragedy, guys. So the happily ever after part was great, but there is the, you know, the false identity of the person writing the letters or, you know, creating the lines um, with the intent of having the other person. I mean, the intent here is not exactly the same, but it's very similar, you know, in that um, uh, Prudence is kind of expecting Beatrix to keep uh, Christopher on the line. Not originally, mm -hmm. but as things progress, both in terms of the intensity of the letters and the likelihood that Christopher is going to be a war hero upon his return, Prudence starts putting the pressure on Beatrix. Oh, and he, his brother dies while he's abroad, and so he also is now the heir of an estate, so he's like super eligible at this point. Right, which uh, trope never meant to inherit. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So as my summary referred to, this book has a healthy helping of love heals all wounds. Not my favorite trope. And it was tough for me to read here. I'm going to be honest. Clefis does a good job of making Christopher's trauma feel very real. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Both in terms of what he experienced during the war and the personal demons and PTSD he's now struggling with upon his return. Mm -hmm. And I'm in a place right now personally where love and sex taking the place of real actual therapy that is so clearly needed isn't a romance right I yeah I agree with you so I guess props to Clepis for making him feel so real and I get that there wasn't like therapy for military vets back after Crimea no, I mean, there wasn't therapy for military vets back from Vietnam, you know, so, so I, like, I get it. He didn't have that option, but 
if we compare with, say, uh, Daring and the Duke, in that book, Ewan goes off and works on himself for an entire year before he comes back to Court Grace. And yeah. at, at no point does Christopher think, well, he, he actually does think, hmm, it's probably not healthy. I probably should, you know, work on myself. But he doesn't get the chance to do it in this book. And I honestly, it's not the marriage or the fact that he decides to be with her that was the problem. Mm-hmm. He didn't, as a character, to me, really try to work on himself, whether independently or with her. Right. He drank a lot. He, he like, like I said, he thinks this is probably like I'm probably not in a good place, but he doesn't. Right. He doesn't have a solution for it, which you know. God, you know, this is something, of course, he, he doesn't know what to do with it. Like, it's not, you just don't know automatically how to do that, you know? No, of course. But, like, self-awareness is not self-improvement. Right. Yeah, yeah. Knowing and, is not half the battle. Right. And, and I said this to Meg before we recorded, and I don't want to dwell on it because I don't have experience with domestic abuse situations and would and PTSD and would absolutely hate to misspeak. But there were enough times in this text that I was legitimately fearful for him and her mm-hmm. that I don't feel either of them have the tools to adequately deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Like for what should have been a lighthearted book and what in some ways tried to be a lighthearted book and the Hathaway series, mm-hmm. which has been super fluffy and fun, even though there's some tragic elements like this book just for that alone, felt really heavy. Yeah. So speaking of the Hathaway's book, Beatrix is a sad, tragic orphan. Uh, like all of her siblings. Like every <laughs> single, yes. Like because all, that is uh, how that works. Because that's how that works. So she's a sad, tragic orphan. Um, Christopher is not a sad, tragic orphan. His mother is still alive. But his mother always had a favorite son and it was not Christopher and his father had been a philandering irresponsible you know party boy and Christopher's mother was always intent on reflecting those qualities onto Christopher even though from what we can gather in the text they were it was pretty undeserved mm-hmm. yeah Though so he had he, enough of his father in him, he is a reformed rake. I was going to say, you said he was a reformed rake. I, I mean, he definitely had his days around town, but he wasn't like a sinister, <laughs> sinister level rake. <laughs> no, he was admittedly purchased the commission to get to preen around London like a peacock and yeah. have fun with pretty girls and kind of live if not irresponsibly, like not racking up gambling debts and like getting into duels. Right. Which is very much without a care in the world. Right. Yep. That's true. Uh, and then the major conflict in this book, there well, there are two sort of portions to it, right? There's the, the PTSD, obviously. Mm-hmm. So he is acting erratically um, and judges he even judges himself that he's probably not ready to get married. But also when he's, he meets Beatrix when he comes back, 
And he's immediately attracted to her, but he's also like, she's not what I need. I need a normal family, normal friends, uh, a normal life. And if I get involved with these Hathaways, that is not what I'm going to get. So he does not want to get near her. He doesn't want to be friends with her. He doesn't want to have his dog stay at her house <laughs> because her family is so unsuitable. There is a third conflict where she wrote um, letters under a fake name. Oh, well, well, I mean, yes, but that, that's, that's, not, that's not a conflict. That's the, the setup. Okay. <laughs> but no, honestly, given the Hathaways and how they, like, society has treated the Hathaways as outcasts through the entire series, but none of the love interests have worried about the Hathaway's reputation reflecting on them at all in the series yet. Yeah. Well, that's partly because Cam and Maripan are like, we're the ones bringing the family down. <laughs> and then Harry, of course, is like so rich. He can do whatever he wants. That's what billionaires do. And Catherine's um, on the run living under an assumed identity. Right. So like, yeah. whatever. No, I'm not saying I don't actually, get the why. They're all actually worried that they're going to make the family more unsuitable. And Christopher's the only person who, who is coming from the part of society that looks down on the Hathaways. <laughs> <laughs> and um, guys, do you think that maybe, maybe Beatrix might have possibly sent the wrong letter at one time or another and only noticed when she saw the right letter in the waste paper basket slash fireplace slash still on her desk slash in the outgoing mail slash I've seen it so many different yeah. but in this in this case I thought it was so funny because it was literally months later Mm -hmm. <laughs> she discovered that it was the wrong one and I was like really <laughs> but you know what I don't care I love this trope so I was fine with it oh me too and it wasn't it was super super vague yeah she didn't Which, like of course, sign it, it had tricks or anything it had to be for this to be the book it was but a piece of me was like no one jots those four lines with no other context on a piece of paper Right. Even if, if you're writing a letter that you're going to burn later, you put it all on that piece of paper, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or at the very least, your name <laughs> at the very least, like XOXO Beatrix Phelan, you know, <laughs> Mrs. Christopher Phelan. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, so that that brings me to my probably my favorite part of this book are the letters. I love the letters. So the letters actually appear in the text. They're like a pretty um, like maybe a chapter, two chapters just of the letters between them. Mm -hmm. And I really like them a lot because you you do get a sense of their compatibility of them falling in love. I, I really like them. And the trauma he's going through yeah yeah the trauma he's going through um but you also see that that's why she's compatible because she's so practical which i think is a great wheel a great way for him for it's a great way to respond to this information that she's getting from him um she's giving him she's not engaging him in these like philosophical ideas like, Oh, do you think you're doing the right thing by killing these men or whatever? You know, mm -hmm. she's, she's like, 
like, yes, you're going through this hellish time, but the world is still going on the way that it always has for hundreds of years back here. I don't know. Right. I, I, I love I love the letters, actually. Definitely my favorite part of this book. They are over very early in the book. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Meg's here to crap on your favorite book again. <laughs> so one of the things I found so interesting about this book, he comes back from the war. His whole life has changed. He went from being the spare to being the heir. He went from being an aloof man about town to a grizzled war vet. And the only other person who knows the trick that Beatrix pulled with the letters is Christopher's sister-in-law, Audrey. Mm -hmm. And Audrey makes all of these, like, comments to him in passing about, like, Prue's character. Mm -hmm. which contradicts the evidence he has seen in the letters. Mm -hmm. Now, the reader knows that's because Prue didn't write them. Beatrix did. But I don't quite understand why everyone was sort of nudging him, like, you really think a girl like Prue could write these? Because the whole point was he barely knew Prue. Right. Like, the whole point was they danced together a couple of times and exchanged, like, flirtatious banter, and he thought these letters were them actually getting to know each other. Right. Like, I sort of didn't love the portrayal, especially by Audrey, that, like, a pretty girl who likes parties and knows how to say the right meaningless thing in a ballroom couldn't have hidden depths. I know we know she doesn't. Right. But it it made me think of that other Claypus book we just read, A Wallflower Wallflower Christmas. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, because do you remember in that book, there was Lady Natalie, um, who was just this terrible person and Rafe had to decide between her and Hannah. And in that book, we both said it, wouldn't it be nice if he had two good choices to, to pull from, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I get that Prudence couldn't be a good choice here. (laughs) But she didn't have to be portrayed as being as catty and as focused on, you know, social ambition as she was. Right. Like, it's easy enough to put her without giving her a ton of depth because there are shallow people and they can be lovely. Yeah. Like, not criticizing her for looking out for herself and, like, not marrying a guy she is neither attracted to nor affords her any opportunity to improve her place in society. Like she's not a bad person for not being into him. Right. As we established, like, I know. Um, yeah. So he, he, he discovers pretty early on that Prue is not the one who wrote the letters, but he doesn't discover who did write them. Which makes no sense because he's already contextualized a ton of the things Beatrix said from the letters. He should have, as soon as he he finally confirmed that Prudence didn't write the letters, he should have known immediately who it was. Right. Because they were written with consistent handwriting, the same signature. Like, it's not like this is a team of sleuths. Right. So he should have known, but I, I don't. I don't care if you want to preserve that fantasy for a while. Like I'm, I'm actually fine with it. 
I, mm-hmm. I, it would have been nice if he figured it out right away, but eh, you know, whatever. He didn't. But it just even he specifically thinks about the letters in the context of Beatrice's actions. Mm-hmm. It's not like she writes in the letter, I like mint tea with honey. Right. It's he sees Beatrix drinking mint tea with honey and thinks about Prudence's letter in which she says, I drink mint tea with honey. Right. Like, it's not the reader drawing these conclusions and Clapis like, sneaking in references. No. He directly thinks about it and then still misses it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there are other examples as well. Yes. But his, what gets me every time about this book is, so when I read it for the first time, I thought this was going to be more of a, um, again, the magic kind of Clefas, where he explicitly is like, I am going to seduce this woman to get revenge on her. Right? Uh-huh. So I thought that's what kind of book I was getting into. And I will simply say, if you have never read this book before and you're planning on reading it, I will say that that is not how it goes down. And I was shocked. The first time I read this book, I was like, what just happened? It was very shocking. And to me, it appeared to be out of character, or at least the character that we had gotten from Christopher for the first half of the book. Yeah. I didn't understand why he made the assumptions he did Mm -hmm. about the motives for Prue not writing the letter and the motives of the person who actually did. And, but that said, I found it less that his characterization was inconsistent, Mm -hmm. that the tone shift was abrupt. Yeah. It's a major tone shift. Yeah. It wouldn't have taken much in his head for him to realize like, you would have needed two thoughts of him having the aha moment that Beatrice reading the letter hadn't been malicious. Yes. Well, and that completely changing his perspective, but it was like, it went from this violent, super tense scene to this like rainbows and butterflies in a couple pages. And that felt really jarring. And it's very interesting that you say that lane, because when I think back on it, it's totally written from Beatrix's perspective. Mm-hmm. Maybe if there had just been a, a perspective shift, I would not be feeling this way. I like your interpretation I, better than bad characterization. Um, but that does mean that there, there was a major issue with how this scene was handled. If both of us were like, wait, what? Yes, 100%. So, but that's, that's every time. Uh, so the first time I read the book, I was like shocked. And mm-hmm. then every time I read it afterwards, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's how this goes down. That's weird. <laughs> every time I'm like, this is so weird. But well, it's honestly, it's sort of surprising to me that this book was so short. Yeah. Because I think there were a couple of points that could have done with being fleshed out. Yeah. Well, this one specifically. This one specifically. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like, I'm not kidding. This one really, it, it, I think it would improve my experience of reading this book my reader experience would be improved if that had been addressed (laughs) well if you got her running out of the room then him on horseback chasing her then her getting to secret house yeah it's like the chapter of him in pursuit is missing yeah or her running out of the room him like rolling over in bed and not going into pursuit right away but just being like whoa Mm -hmm. what just happened that was weird and also he he says he follows albert there wouldn't it have been nice if he like rolled over in bed and was like, whoa, what just happened? And then he like pulled out the letters and he was like, oh, maybe she went to her secret place. Yes. 
But then okay. you'd still need to know where it was. So Albert would still have had to help. But if he'd had some like. Yeah. Or if he had been like he had been walking around the woods and seen it the other day. Like that's, you know, I don't care. Throw that in. Sure. And the point is, it wouldn't have taken much for, I think, your specific complaint to have been addressed. <laughs> My specific reader experience. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's an easy and justifiable thing to have wanted to be like in the text. Yeah. Um, let me tell you something I, I really like about this book. Yes. So he um, comes back from the war. And one of the first people he meets, other than his family, is Beatrix. Because he's out, mm -hmm. you know, tramping around the woods. First of all, he's tramping in the woods because he doesn't want to be around too many people. But secondly, he's also in the woods because Prudence, in her letters to him, said that she loves walking in the woods. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of hoping to run into Prudence. Now, of course, he does run into the woman who wrote the letters. That would be Beatrix, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have a whole conversation, and it's like, you know, it's setting it up. Um, I like that conversation. And then he goes back, and he's, like, talking to Audrey, his sister-in-law, about what just happened and blah, blah, blah. And um, he's like, that Beatrix Hathaway is such a weird girl. And Audrey says something like, well, she's not really a beauty, but she's a very nice person. He's like, not a beauty. What are you talking about? She's so beautiful with that beautiful dark hair and those beautiful eyes. And then he sees that Audrey's like kind of giving him a look and he's like, but that doesn't matter. She's still unsuitable. <laughs> the fact that he is immediately so in love with mental prue, mm -hmm. but desperate Mm -hmm. desperate for Beatrice's body from the beginning is one of the sh most pure joys in this life. I loved it. I love it. I love that part where they're just trying to resist the attraction, but what do they call it? I've he heard it called mentionitis, you know, <laughs> like you just can't help but talk about how great this one person is. And then, and then you're like, Oh no, have I, have I been talking about my crush too much? <laughs> well, and that's when in romance novels, like the whole family. Yeah. Realizes like, Oh, you are absolutely more into him than you will admit to us. Uh-huh. Which yep. of course happens here. Don't worry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, another one of my favorite parts about this book is the whole Hathaway family being like, Beatrix has got it bad for that guy. Yup. <laughs> I love that. I love that stuff. Well, I also love how just matter of fact he is about her being like the hottest thing he's ever seen. Oh, totally. Oh, my God. And huge trope. Um, She wears pants mm -hmm. and he cannot handle it. He can't handle it, which, you know. Oh, and then post-coital, he dresses her in his shirt. <laughs> he does. He does. Her attire is very, oh, and her sister sneaks her lingerie on the wedding night. Her attire is just a series of tropes. Yeah, it is. But they're tropes that I like, so. Oh, I yeah, like no, them. this is not a complaint. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's my responsibility to disclose this information. So I, I do think this is very much a Clefus novel in that I think she does a good job with characters and she does a good job with like dialogue and she does a great job with sex and she does a good job with relationships and families. But she does not do a great job with a plot. And that I think continues in this book because 
after he discovers who the writer of the letters is, there is no more plot. <laughs> well, though, there is. It's just very random and does not organically derive from the previous plot. <laughs> it's just some stuff that happens, you know? Yeah, that's true. She's like, all right, well, guys, okay, we're going to plan the wedding, plan the engagement ball, have the wedding, go on honeymoon, come back home. Like, it literally is just like, you right, know. But then come back home to dun, dun, dun. A new assailant who we had no idea was going to be in the text. That had not been telegraphed at all. No, not at all. So it it reminds me a lot of um, Secrets of the Summer Night, actually. Do you remember? They got married yes. on their honeymoon, came back. All of a sudden, this weird thing happens out of nowhere. Yep. Also, this is a pretty short book. And it, it's missing some of the traditional Hathaway elements. Yes, yes. Especially one of our favorites. Um, um, cock blocking. <laughs> the the Hathaway the Hathaway plot element that we are always looking for. Yes. And it did not happen in this book, guys. And the traditional pre-wedding discussion also was only sort of there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was just really disappointed because I felt like there this this was really fertile ground for cock blocking. Like it yeah. could have happened several times to several different characters. Uh, okay. Well, no, never mind. I was gonna say Leo is flirting with Marx, and they have to stop him from flirting with her, but that's not the tradition. And that also doesn't really happen on the page. People are gossiping no. about it. Yeah. <laughs> also, um, don't have sex with your dog watching you. And don't do it. But they do. <laughs> I mean, that's what I say. So perfect, perfect, you know, perfect reason Albert starts barking or whatever, you know? Nope. Nah. But. So we, we've sort of been touching on this the whole time. How would you describe the things in this book that threat, that offend you, Meg? Uh, there are, the, most of the things that really get to me in this book, they have to do with, how violent he is, but also how that violence ties into sex. Because on several occasions, Christopher actually threatens to rape her. And while we know, because we're in his head, that he wouldn't do it, and while we know that she doesn't believe it because we're in her head, this is still not, like, this is not appropriate, you know? <laughs> like, no. And there's one time where I think she actually is frightened. Like, there are times when she is actually frightened of Christopher, of what mm -hmm. he will do to her. Um, and that's, I'm just not, I don't like that. <laughs> and there are times that he does not feel like himself when he is being intimate with her. Mm-hmm. I wish there'd been more of a separation between his PTSD feelings and his in the middle of hooking up with her feelings. Yes. Yes. I, I agree. I Lane, you said this felt like a short book to you and I feel like these parts of it could have done with more development. That's a really good point. 
You know, I, I think I'm there there are probably not saying that just as a request for more porn. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> we do have depth. <laughs> We're not prudence, okay? <laughs> but, but I don't know. Like, there's a time where he's like, "Aren't you going to protest?" Because he's like kissing her up against the wall in a stable. Again, perfect time for a cock block. The the horse sticks his head out and snorts in their face or something. I don't know. It doesn't happen. Um, so they're, they're in a stable. He's like aggressively making out with her and he's like, what, you're not going to say no. And she thinks, oh yeah, I guess I better say no. And she, the word is the, the adverb is languorously says, mm-hmm. oh no, stop. And I was like, I don't know. I am over women telling men to stop when they don't want them to stop. Also, she specifically thinks, oh, right, he wants me to hate this. The only way he'll keep going is if I beg him to stop. Exactly. And I was like, oh, no, honey, no, this is problematic on so many levels. Because if you say stop, he should stop. Right. And this weird, like, double speak of, like, how he's using sex to manipulate the situation and how you're turning it around on him just ends up feeling like you guys aren't actually communicating and shouldn't be hooking up. Right. Um. I just, I want more people during sex saying what they want during sex and not trying to pretend like they're saying what they think they're supposed to say, you know? Right. And not threatening one another, you well, know, yeah. non-sexy way. <laughs> that that too. Like there, there's literally a time where she, she tries to get him to sober up or something and he's like, if you don't get out of this room, I'm going to force myself on you you know and and she says well I'm not leaving so and so he jumps out of the bed presses her up against the wall they end up in bed together you know yeah I didn't it's hard because I thought this book was objectively stupid sexy well okay do we want to move to sexiness because this book is Uh... real sexy yeah, I think so. But the problem is just like, I, oh, one thing that has nothing to do with sex that I would put in the events in this category, um, the mother clearly has a favorite child. Uh-huh. And I know yeah. that can be tough for some people to read. Okay, back to the sex. So for all that the circumstances were unsexy, parts of this book really worked for me and I wish they didn't. Like, this is one of these things I'm like totally putting up in problematic faves situation. Well, like, no, it is not healthy for your romantic partner to be your mental health anchor in a very visceral way. And like Mm -hmm. the only thing you have to a therapist, but is being needed really sexy also? Yes. Yeah. And then his, uh, he's the Clayfist sex hero (laughs) in that he literally, there's literally the line in this book where he says, she's like, what about you? And he goes, I'll take care of you. (laughs) Yep. And I can't say that I don't like that because I like that, you know? Like, what can I say? I've read enough Clayfus books where I'm like, this is the Clayfus trope. We can criticize a lot of the communication in this book, but I actually think when it came to once they finally weren't manipulating each other having sex, they were just having fun having sex. Mm-hmm. A lot of that stuff did work really well. Oh, Yeah. Yes, I I agree with you. I agree with you. I I actually loved that part where she was like, I wish I was, I wish there were, had been no other women, mm-hmm. you know, because how many times 
do you see that in a romance novel? Not that many. Right. It's it's more often. I don't want to think about his other other levels, but I'm grateful to him for them for teaching him these things that he is now doing to my body. Right. Like, uh, thank goodness he had those years of debauchery because I'm reaping the benefits now. Which, once again, it's not that that's bad. It's just the diversity of experience is great. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So I don't, I don't know if I recommend this book because the the arc of the Hathaway series was pretty much wrapped up in book four. That's that's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if our conversations about the PTSD and the way that was handled have you going, eh, I think I want to skip this one. I don't think you lose out on the series. Yeah. That said, if that kind of stuff doesn't bother you, the the love letters are wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and the there there is a really nice family dynamic. I know we said that there wasn't as much of it as in previous books, but it's still there. The Hathaways are still the Hathaways. It's really nice to see it. And They're still is, in Hampshire. Yes, yes. House is the setting of an event. They're still in Stony Cross Park. There are lots of Stony Cross Park traditions in this book. So if you've been missing gingerbread men and throwing breadcrumbs and, you know, all kinds of really well-researched stuff that happens in the countryside in, in England, that's all here. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you like sexy Claypus books, this book is a sexy Claypus book also. So, you know, take it. I feel like I can't say universally everyone should read this book, but if you were interested in what you heard today, it's worth reading. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for listening. We would love it if you could rate, review, subscribe, and check us out on the internet at Plot Trists. That would be on Instagram, Facebook, and Goodreads.